Well, good morning. I would ask that you would open your Bibles to the book of First Timothy this morning. First Timothy, and we're going to be starting in uh, chapter three uh, with our reading this morning. First Timothy, chapter three. And uh, if you're not sure where uh, the book of First Timothy is at, it's about two thirds of the way through the New Testament. So if you get to the book of Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament. Go about two-thirds of the way through and you'll find books that uh, start with T's, Thessalonians, two of those, two Timothys, and then, of course, the little book of Titus. Uh, Even uh, the Bible writers were alliterationists. They like to keep all the T's together. I'm kidding, and the joke didn't go as well as I thought it would. On notes it said, crowd will laugh, but it didn't. Nonetheless, we are in a series that we've entitled, Just Do It, and for the last Uh, Four weeks now, we have had a desire to talk about what biblical preaching is all about, what it's to look like, how it is to be uh, articulated to the people of God, what is the source of biblical preaching. And we finish our series this week by looking at the divine manual, owner's manual of preachers. I want to have just a moment of confession this morning. I want you to confess Are you one who reads the owner's manuals or the assembly uh, directions when you open up a gift or get something new? How many actually read that stuff? That's pretty sad. Um, See, there's an adventure when you buy something. At Christmas time or when we buy something uh, at the house, there's an adventure because when I open up all those parts and all those pieces, I see a great, wide-open space for me to create and for me to involve myself without looking at those directions, without looking at the instructions. And if you were to go around my home, you would see the things that I put together, and you would see the things that Amanda's father put together, because now what she does is when she sees us bring a big box home, she gets on the phone to her father and says, please come quickly. Tim is going to ruin it. Now, the big reason why I don't like reading owner's manuals or assembly instructions is because to me they are a drudgery. To me, they have a lot of needless details that mean nothing to it. I just want to get that thing built and have fun with it or or have it so I can get back to the other more important things in life. But what I've learned as I continue to grow older and as I continue to see these things fall apart little by little, one piece at a time, usually the pieces that are missing that I say, oh, how nice of them to give me a couple extra pieces just in case, I find out they have a key part, a key place in the instructions of, of assembling it or operating that certain piece of machinery or that piece of furniture that I have. And what happens is, is what was supposed to work a certain way doesn't. What was supposed to stand a certain way or shelves were supposed to be at a certain angle aren't. And just like in my house with some of my furniture and some of the things, because of my forsaking of reading the instructions or of following the divine or the, the owner's manual, I find out that the things I look forward to with certain results taking place, those results don't come to fruition. I'm here to tell you this morning that we live in a society where preachers are doing that in the pulpits. Instead of reading the owner's manuals, instead of reading the divine uh, manual for preaching, 
They say, you know what, let's not get stuck in the details. Let's deal with the creative spirit. Let's make sure we have fun with this aspect of of the preaching of a message or that aspect. And we get uh, real involved in videos and stories and all these different things. And what is happening is, is while when you first put it together, it looks all right. It looks like what it's supposed to look like in the picture after time. And as it goes on, you'll see the wear and the tear of not doing it right. Just because a guy gets up behind a music stand or a pulpit, just because he uh, has the name pastor in front of him, doesn't mean that he is a biblical preacher. My desire is that we would know, as I talked about last week, where to get good cooking. And it's not that there's a, that, that at this church we are the only ones doing it. I don't want you to think that there aren't great biblical preaching going on throughout our area. There are. There are great churches. We are by far not the only one doing it. But sadly, as the growing trend we see is, is that biblical preaching is something that is made of shortcuts instead of the details that God has called preachers to be a part of. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because there is a manual. It isn't just get up, tell some stories, have a Bible verse that goes along with it, come up with some application and close the door. That's not what preaching is about. And I want you to hear from my heart and also the heart of a great apostle to a word, a word that is given to a young pastor named Timothy. So let's stand as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to start because the natural break in the text would not be at the start of verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 4, but in verse 14 of chapter 3. After talking about elders and deacons in chapter 3, he stops and he says, Paul speaking to Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions. There's that instruction manual. So that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in all the world, and was taken up in glory. Chapter 4 opens and says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Why does Paul end chapter 3 that way? It is, in a nutshell, what the Christian belief is all about. It's all about Jesus. That He came, He lived, He died. He gave the Gospel to all that would believe and that in that we would find eternal life. And now He resides in heaven. But Paul says in later days... Some will abandon the faith. They'll abandon what I've just said. And deceiving spirits, and they'll go to things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Verse 4 says, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. If you point out these things to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. 
Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, it's parathetically said, and for this we labor and strive that we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Now listen to what he says. We're getting into our text this morning. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and purity. So until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father God, we have read from your word this morning. And Father, these words are good. These words are true. These words are food for our souls. And Lord, we come. We come humbly to this word this morning that we might receive from it, that we may be able to understand what we are to know when it comes to this gift and this role of preaching within the church. Lord, we as a church desire nothing more than to raise high the standard of You and Your Word. But for that to be done, we must preach and teach according to what You have recorded in Scripture. We must preach and teach according to how You want us to do that. Oh, Father, I pray that the tide of popular opinion, the tide of schemes and different ways of doing things, Father, will always fall subject to You and Your Word. And Lord, we wouldn't do things just to make people feel good, that we wouldn't just do things to, to put together a good sermon that everybody talks about, but Father, that we would, just as Paul tells us, preach the Word, and that that would be our only source and that You would be the only one who received glory and honor from it. Oh Lord, we long for You to speak to us this morning. And we give this time to You and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Paul says in chapter 3, I give you these instructions. If you underline or circle in your Bible, circle that word, instructions. Paul is giving Timothy a divine plan of ministry. Now, there are a lot of books these days that are coming out from all different types of pastors and churches saying, this is how you do ministry. And they've all got their ideas. And the ones that I only want to read are the ones that are full of the instructions from God's Word. I don't want to read what the popular preachers or the popular churches are doing today unless it can be found in the living and active Word of God. Paul, the apostle, he's older at this time, writing his first letter to Timothy, who is in the city of Ephesus. He's a young preacher. Paul has left Ephesus and has set up Timothy to be the preacher, to be the pastor of that church, along with other elders in that midst. And Paul gives Timothy some words of caution and words of instruction. The first thing we see this morning, if we want to have biblical preaching... The first thing that we must do is make 
sure the teaching of Scripture is your greatest pursuit. Make the teaching of Scripture your greatest pursuit. Now, there's a lot of things that as pastors we are called to do. There are a lot of things as elders and as teachers of the Bible that we are called to do. But what Paul is telling us as a people who are teachers and preachers, proclaimers of the truth of God, is to make the Scriptures your greatest pursuit. Make that your number one goal. Now, we see that in a couple ways in our text this morning. First of all, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 13. It says, until I come, devote yourself. Now, let's stop there for a moment. The first thing we see about this pursuit is that it should be a consuming pursuit. It should be consuming. This word devote literally means to turn one's mind to something. It means that it would occupy your mind. It means literally to apply yourself, to give undivided allegiance or attention to a certain task or to a certain responsibility. Paul is saying, hey, make sure there's a lot of things that you can do as a pastor. You can go visit the sick. You can go and, uh, and talk with other leaders. You can uh, set up a program or put together uh, this new ministry or that new ministry. You can uh, go and uh, spend time studying, and that's all you do. And don't come out and you're just a student of the Word. You can do all those things. But Paul says, make sure first and foremost, you are devoted to Scripture. Don't just study the graphs of what the area of Sugar Grove and Yorkville says about churches and what we should be doing in our five-year plan or our ten-year plan. Paul says, devote yourself. If you are going to be the preacher of the Word of God, you must be devoted to that Word. A New York pastor from the 19th century named Gardner Springs says, the goal of every preacher is to give preeminence to the preaching of the Word over everything else. My role, my responsibility isn't to oversee a building plan. It isn't to make sure that all the ministries are all set up. But I've been given the responsibility to preach and teach the Word of God. It must be preeminent in the role that I play. Now, if I start liking other things and setting those as being more important, then the elder's job is to say, you know what? Your job has, is no longer teaching pastor. It's all these other things. And we're going to go find ourselves a new teaching pastor. I have to devote myself and be consumed with the pursuit of teaching and preaching the Word of God. Now, he goes on. He says this isn't something that just happens every once in a while, but it's to be constant. Write that down. It is to be constant. It is a constant pursuit. The word devote uh, is, uh, is said here to be in a present imperative tense. It's a verb. It is to be ongoing. This isn't something that, hey, Timothy, devote yourself, especially during the holy weeks. Make sure you devote yourself, especially when there's a hard text that you have to deal with. He doesn't say devote yourself when you don't have the answer to a question. He says all the time, Every day, devote yourself to the Word of God. Now, you may say, well, this is good, Tim. You're preaching a sermon to yourself. Understand this. As I told you when we talked about the book of Jonah in week two, all of us are proclaimers of the Word of God. So what should be uh, we devoting ourselves to? Whether we're bankers, whether we're caterers, whether we're in the business world, whether we're throwing garbage into garbage trucks, what is the job of the Christian? To be devoted to the teaching and preaching of Scripture. 
We're to be devoted to it. We are to make sure that we are growing in that knowledge and in the pursuit of it. Now understand that this is to happen all the time. Look at 2 Timothy. Go one book over to your right. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This pursuit of preaching and teaching the Scriptures is of greatest importance. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. When are we to be devoted to the Word of God? Whether we're preaching, whether we're those that are sitting in the pews or teaching in a small group or even young children here in the next hour during Sunday school. When are we to do it? We're to do it when we want to do it. We're to do it when we've got all kinds of other things pulling at us. I can't tell you how many times on Saturday night when I need to be focused in getting ready to teach and preach the Word of God, I've had to tell people, you know what? I would love to go do that. I would love to go be a part of this get-together or that get-together. I'd love to go out with the guys and shoot some hoops, but I can't. And I can't say that begrudgingly. I have to say because I am devoted to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. There are going to be days that you're going to want to teach. There's going to be days that you don't want to pick up the Word. Paul says do it all the time. It is to be a constant pursuit. final thing that we see in is that it's commanded of all who preach. It is commanded. Paul says in verse 13 again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, until I come, devote yourself. Paul isn't saying, hey, uh, here's a quick tip, young Timothy. Uh, preach the Word. If you've got nothing else going on, preach the Word. You know, it seems to work. That's not what he says. He says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, and what I want to see in my young disciple is the following, that you are preaching and teaching the Word of God. Now, he says that to young Timothy. Well, I know the Apostle Paul isn't coming back to see how I'm doing, but there's someone even greater who will be coming back one day. And someone who even greater is going to examine how we preach and teach. And the Lord isn't concerned or great about the amount of laughs I get during a sermon. The Lord isn't concerned about how all my letters lined up like they were supposed to. The Lord isn't concerned about how great and cool my topics or my titles are. He's concerned about one thing, that we preach and teach the Word of God. That the Word of God is our only source. It is the only thing that we raise high. And that God receives glory in and through that. Preachers have a mandate. Not to be CEOs. Not to be uh, the bosses of these great conglomerates. But to be people who study and teach and preach the Word of God. That's our job. That's the job that we have. Now our preaching can be done in a group of 400 it can be done in a group of 20, 40, 100. It can be done across the table with one. So if you say, Tim, what about the other guys that are on staff? Well, they're preachers and teachers too. They don't have the responsibility of week in and week out to be preaching in front of all of us combined. That's my responsibility. But there's no doubt in my mind that I see Pastor Keith preaching and teaching as he counsels. There's teaching going on. 
as he's working, as he's going and doing hospital visits, that he's sharing with people and doing it in an incredible way, far greater than I would ever be able to share in those circumstances. There's no doubt Mario is doing that each and every week. He's got just a smaller congregation. Each week, week in and week out, he's preaching the Word of God to the students. He's teaching them. I love that Mario isn't involved in topical preaching and teaching. Kids love that kind of stuff. But you know what Mario says? Hey, if kids are going to change, if they're going to grow, we're going to teach them the Word of God and go verse by verse, book by book. We're going to teach the kids what the Word of God says. Not what fancies what fancies I have from week to week. Mario's preaching. How about, how about Scott? Scott's involved in Bible studies and he's raising up men and he's creating a mandate by preaching and teaching the importance of missions and outreach. It isn't that we just put programs together and make sure people are part of it. The staff that we bring on, and as we continue to bring uh, pastors and elders onto this group of uh, leaders, is the job they have to be able to preach and teach the Word of God. When I was younger in a church, I remember that there was a great deal of uh, trouble that was brought up in the church. And I remember that there was a meeting that happened. And as a young kid in an independent Bible church, the kids always wanted to be a part of what was going on in the meetings because we always saw the parents arguing with one another. And we stuck our head in the, in the meeting, me and a couple of my friends. And the argument was about a new elder that had been placed in the church. And there was an argument whether, uh, because he was a businessman, whether he should be in the church. And a lot of people said, well, he's a businessman, that makes him a good leader. And there was a whole group of people saying, yes, he should be the elder. But then there was a whole group of people saying, but the guy doesn't know the Word of God. How can he shepherd the people of God if he doesn't know the Word of God? Let me tell you something. Just because someone is a leader does not mean they can be an elder or a deacon in this church. They must be able. The Bible says they must be apt to teach. Why? Because that's the role that we've been given. Is leadership a part of that? Yes. But what leadership do I have if I don't have the Word of God? What advice can I give? I'm a lowly caterer who flips pork chops for a living. You got, I don't got anything more than that. I can tell you how to cook meat just right. But when it comes to fixing your sin problem, I have to be able to rightly divide the Word of Truth. I have to be able to do that. And as elders and pastors and as deacons, we have to be able to do that as well. It is commanded. Paul says, do it. I'm going to come back and I want to make sure it's happening. Second point this morning. Not only do we need to make the teaching of Scripture our greatest pursuit, we need to devote ourselves to it, Paul says. But at the end of verse 13, he goes on and he says, step number two to this assembly or to this uh, godly, divine uh, pattern for preaching is that we make sure that our teaching follows that godly plan. It's one thing to uh, make sure our pursuit is the Word of God, but it has to follow a certain plan. It has to follow a certain step. Look at what this uh, pattern that God gives for preaching involves. Verse 13 again. This is what it says. I'm in the wrong book of the Bible here. Hold on a second. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, now until I come, devote yourself. Devote yourselves to what, Paul? What are we to devote ourselves to, Paul says, to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching, and to preaching. There are three things that we see this morning that should be a part of every aspect and every time we get together and open the Word. The first thing is, is that it needs to involve reading the Word of God in public. It involves reading the Word of God in public. What that means is when we come together, 
I can't just talk and never share my source. I have to say, this is what the Lord says, and this is where he says it. Each Sunday I listen to a guy that preaches, and uh, one thing that I struggle with in his preaching is that he's preaching so fast, and he's moving so quickly for the sake of time that he just cites scriptures. The Bible says, the Bible says, and nowhere, and I, maybe he does it in the church, but nowhere in the, on the radio can I ever hear where that verse is coming from. And then he shares them via a paraphrase, so it sounds like it's just a great proverb. So I don't know whether he's preaching from the Word or whether he's preaching uh, just from some just great anecdotes that he found uh, at some point or in some book. We need to make sure that we preach the Word by reading it. You need to know where I'm at in the text. That's why I say open your Bibles. I don't want you to take my word for, my, my word for it. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to see that this is what the Bible says. We need to read it. Now, this reading is commanded throughout Scripture. We see it in the uh, Old Testament. You don't have to turn to the two passages that I'm going to give you because we looked at them last week. Ezra 7.10, remember? Ezra was a student of the law, and he devoted himself to the word of the law, and he obeyed it, and the study of it, and the observance of it, and then he went and taught it. Ezra 7.10 tells us that we were to read. We see in uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 18, that from daylight to noon, six hours, they stood and were part of the reading of the word of God. But it doesn't just stop. It's not an Old Testament thing. We see Jesus did it. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you're in 1 Timothy, turn to your left. Get into the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're going to see Acts and Romans there. Right in the middle of those books is the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. It says, Jesus went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. This was not some special day. This is what he did. And he stood up to read. Now the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Him. And then He began by saying, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus goes in. And Jesus, of all people, could have just started talking and it would have been Scripture. But what does Jesus do? He goes and He opens the scroll. He sees that He's in the book of Isaiah. And what does He do? He reads what the prophets had announced. And then He taught. See, that's the second thing that we see. Before I get to the teaching, let's look at just a couple more passages. Colossians chapter 4 for a moment. Colossians chapter 4. Jesus wasn't the only one that then did this, but the New Testament is full of references. Colossians chapter 4. You're in Luke. Go back to your right. You're going to go through the books of the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, and you're going to get into Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. 
Go eat popcorn. Remember that, and you'll remember those books. Galatians, I'm sorry, uh, Colossians chapter, chapter four, verse sixteen. Listen to what Paul says after he has written this letter to the church at Colossae. He says, "After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of Laodice- to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea." What's going on here? Now remember, each of these letters that Paul writes are to churches. The book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. The book of Philippians is a letter to the church at Philippi. The the letter of Colossians, I'm sorry, the book of Colossians is a letter to the church at Colossae. And we've got all of these letters. Timothy is a letter to Timothy. Thessalonians is to the Thessalonican church. The book of Romans that we looked at chapter 1 extensively is from a letter written to the church in Rome. These are all letters. And what does Paul say? Read them and hand them off and make sure that the reading of these letters is read by all people. Well, we have that in the form of the canon of Scripture now. These letters have been forever placed in the canon of Scripture. And what is our job? To read the Word of God. To read it. To meditate on it. I'll give you a couple other passages just for your notes. First Thessalonians 5.27 speaks about the need to read uh, the Word. Revelation 1.3 does as well. Now, why is this such of importance? You say, doesn't everybody read the Word? I'll tell you. In the time where we now are moving people in and out like a drive through at McDonald's in church services, the thing that we see taken out of services first and foremost is the reading, the public reading of Scripture. Why? Because it takes time. And, and you know what? We're really not going to be dealing with only one verse maybe today or one, one key thought. Do they need to hear all of that stuff? Yes. The Bible says devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Let us never, ever fall prey to the idea that reading the Scripture is boring or just a, a little step to the preaching. You know, the greatest thing about the reading of Scripture, it is God preaching to us. Wouldn't you rather hear God preach than me? I hope you do. I hope you don't sit there and say, well, okay, yeah, let's move on. Why does he read so much of the passage? You know what? That's God preaching. That's his words. Instead of going through a middleman when I preach. The next thing that we see is that it involves the reading the word in public, but it also involves relaying the word of truth to others. Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading, but also to teaching, he says. This word uh, teaching um, is the Greek word didaskalia, which means literally the teaching. Make sure that you do the reading and then you do the teaching. And what we see in this text is that what it means is, is read the word and then explain the word. People need to understand what the word says. Now, this word literally is, is the word the teaching means the doctrine. Teach the doctrine. This isn't what it's going to do in your life. This isn't what it's going to, how you apply this. This is saying this is what the Bible says. This is what it says. This is what it means. This is the context of it. This is the history behind it. Let's not move beyond that. There are so many people who have moved just to the application. What does it mean to me? How does it fix my marriage? How does it make my kids live in a proper way? How do I make sure I have enough money in the bank account? We always want to get to that. Paul says, first of all, get into the teaching. Explain the text to people. Don't just apply, because these aren't just Proverbs. These are the teaching, the doctrines of God. 
Why, why does that matter? Because we see literally the unfolding of Scripture take place before our eyes. God has something to say to us. And if we get to the application of it too quickly, then we just get to what my thoughts are on the passage instead of letting God speak for His passage by Himself. Next we see not only the relaying of the truth to others, but encouraging others to respond to the Word. The word preaching in the NAS is literally the exhortation. It's the Greek word paraklesis. Paraklesis literally means uh, a, a whole bunch of things. It can mean to encourage, to summons, to exhort, to persuade, to console, to comfort, to warn, to silence. Now, what is that? Well, that's preaching. The job of the preacher is to do all of those things. It isn't that I just come and say, okay, open up your books and we're just going to talk just about the truth of God. That's teaching. You see that a lot in Bible schools. You see that in Sunday school classes where we're going to say, we're going to, we're going to understand as close as possible what is God saying in this text. And that's what we're going to do. It's a science experiment, if you will, to get as deep as we can. And there's a place for that. But for the preaching, the preaching, there's something more. It's taking the text, taking the truth of the text, and then going, all right, what are we to do with it? We're to apply it. How are we to apply it? By responding to it. Which means at times I'm going to summon you to something. This is what the Word of the Lord says. We need to do something about it. I need to persuade you. Some of you aren't living that way. And it's time you start living that way because God says we are to live lives of holiness. There are other times where I don't do any of that. And I console. And I say, I know it's tough. I know you're struggling. I know that it's difficult to go to work every day and be the only Christian in your workplace. But understand the peace of God is there. God is with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I console. The job of the preacher isn't just to yell and scream. It's to comfort. In fact, the job of the preacher sometimes is to silence. When false teaching is going around, the preacher is to get up with the uh, help of all the elders to stand up and to silence those who are in air. It's to do all those things. Now, how is it to be done? I have a couple of things. Preaching should be done persuasively. Now, I don't mean by persuasive words, but by flattery or anything, but persuasively. I, I have to have uh, a, a spirit amongst me to persuade you on why you should live this way. I hope you see a fire in me. I hope you see me sweating sometimes and I'm exerting some energy that, hey, he's serious about this. He's excited about this. This is important. I need to wake us up from sometimes the slumber because that's what the Lord does to me throughout the week. Why? Because I listen to godly preaching. I don't listen to just myself preaching, but I go and I listen to other guys because I have to be woken up from my sleep sometimes. Tim, you're missing it. You're not living the life of holiness God has called. He needs to be persuasive. He needs to be powerful. We're not to be just quiet about this. We are to announce it. It is to be powerfully proclaimed to people. It's to be done passionately. I've already talked about that, thus the sweating. Literally, what it means is it is to be what uh, one Greek scholar said, a stirring address. The preaching of the Word of God is to be a stirring address. Now, does that mean that you go and find people that are just like Tim to be able to do that? No. I believe even the greatest introvert can give a stirring address address. You know, some of you say, well, Tim, I just don't have that kind of passion uh, that you do. Maybe not in the area of preaching, but some of you are going to about four o'clock going to be pretty fired up about a game today. And maybe it's not that. Maybe it's about something else. We all can get passionate about something. Passion isn't just for the sanguines or the cholerics in our midst, but it's for all of us. 
And it just depends what you're going to be fired up about. Make sure that the preacher and teacher that you have is fired up, even if it is just a smaller fire, that it's a fire nonetheless. I've seen many of you who are fired up about Jesus, and you would not call yourself a passionate individual, and yet you are. We need to encourage people to respond to the Word of God, Paul says. The next thing we see in step three is remember that preaching the truth requires grit, grit, I say, and perseverance. It requires grit and perseverance. It is not easy. It is not easy to preach. I, I, and I don't want you to, to say that and just for you to feel sorry. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. God's called me to do this, and this is, this is something I do with great joy, but it's not easy. I know some of you say, man, it just looks like you're just, it's so easy. Let me tell you something. I'm scared to death when I get up here. I'm scared to death I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm scared to death my mouth is going to get ahead of me. I'm scared to death that I may hurt individuals. There's nothing worse for me than when, when I, I, I get a note or someone comes up and says, you know, you really, you cut me last week. And, and i got to ask the question, was it me cutting or was it the Lord cutting? And sometimes, frankly, it's me cutting. And I don't like that. And that breaks my heart because I know my words are taken. And that's good that they should be taken as truth. As I preach the Word of God, but sometimes I get in the way. And I'm scared to death of that. I'm scared to death of getting in here and and making a mockery of something God has made so sacred. And it's difficult and it takes perseverance. So how are we supposed to do it? Well, Paul goes on in verse 14 and he articulates how it's to be done. He says, Now, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the preaching of teaching. Now, do not neglect your gift which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. How do you get through it? How do you go through it? I want you to know, I was talking with Amanda last night, there is no greater feeling than to get to Saturday night, usually around 11 o'clock, my studying for the week is over. I usually will go and we'll lay the boys down uh, after a Saturday night of activities and we'll lay them down and I'll go to a quiet place and I'll just start to look at my notes. Now, many of you know, and just to give you an idea, I was scared to death last week. I used to preach 40 pages of notes every week. Every word I had was manuscripted. And the Lord is changing me and moving me. I've got this. This is what I'm preaching from right now. And I'll tell you what, I'm scared to death. Am I going to remember everything I've got? And I'm sitting there going, I've got to write smaller next time. But then I won't be able to see. And, and what is the Lord doing? I don't know. But I, a couple of weeks ago, I tried to manuscript my message. And it just little by little stopped happening. And I said, Lord, maybe you're releasing me to be able just to speak my heart and, and just to do something different. Well, it seems to be working okay. I haven't said um too many times, so that's good. But it, it, it takes time to sit down and read it. But on Saturday night, I don't start enjoying Saturday until about 11 o'clock at night. Why? Because I finally feel, okay, it's ready. It's done. Like a good caterer, it's done. Let's pull it out of the oven and let's enjoy it now. And it takes up to that point for me to get there. How, How do we get to making preaching any easier? How does it become any easier? It doesn't. There are times where I've written emails or made phone calls to my fellow elders and say, i got nothing. I've got nothing. I've looked over this passage. I don't know what to do with it. That's the problem with expository preaching. You may like what comes out of verses 1 through 10, but it's that darn verse 11. You have no idea what you're going to do with it. And I get to those and say, what am I to pull from this? What does what God want His people to hear from this? 
And you know what they remind me of? Three things. Number one, look at what it says. It says a preacher's moxie. Moxie means courage, determination. I like that word because it takes courage and determination to teach and preach. And it's not just for me, but anybody who does it in a public setting. It comes with a strong commitment to the Bible. Look at what Paul says. He says, don't neglect. The Greek word literally there means don't be careless with it. Don't be flippant. Gosh, what incredible words for me. One who likes to be funny. One who likes to, to make people feel good. Don't, don't be careless about this. Don't be flippant about it, Tim. Just preach it. Be committed to it. The, the word here is a word of great importance. Timothy would have seen it and he would have underlined it in the letter. Don't neglect it. It is a command saying don't forget about this. This is of, too, uh, of such great importance. Don't forget it. But it goes on. It's not just a commitment. Because it involves a commitment to being involved in it. I can't neglect the responsibility that God has given me. But we see it involves the spiritual charisma given by God as well. First Timothy chapter um, 3. Let's look at what it says. It says, not only do not neglect uh, the gift, he says, but he also says the gift that was given you through a prophetic message. What's this gift? This word literally is the Greek word charisma. I didn't use it to say, well, the pastor has to have charisma. He has to have that flair. He has to have that ability for people to like him. That's not what charisma means. Charisma literally in the Greek uh, means that it is a gift that is bestowed upon someone that is based on no merit of the individual, but it's all of God. This charisma is not, well, that guy's got charisma. He's funny. That's not something that he's come up with. That is a charisma God has given him. If he has humbled himself and given that over to God, then God's going to use it. It's a gift that God has given. We know in uh, Romans 12, verse 7, the gift of teaching is talked about. The gift of prophecy, of giving prophetic uh, messages. In the Greek, it was literally uh, one that was given something, though he did not deserve it. He was given it with a responsibility to use it. Think about this word gift for a moment. This gift is given by God and God expects you to use it. Now think about this for a moment. It's like my grandmother. My grandmother used to give me sweaters, ugly sweaters for Christmas. Most of them barely fit. She always thought I was a little more slender than I am. And what would she expect? Every time I saw her, what would she say? Why aren't you wearing that sweater I gave you? That's what God is talking about when he talks about the spiritual charisma, the spiritual gift that he's given you. Whether it's in preaching or teaching, whether it's visiting the sick or being in the gift of helps, this gift, you haven't gotten it on your own. God gave it to you, and just like my grandmother, God expects you to use it. The final thing that we see is that it, there's a supportive confirmation of other godly men. He says that he, they laid hands on you. This idea of laying hands is seen throughout the Scripture. It's seen in the New Testament in Acts especially. There were three reasons why people were laid, hands were laid on them. Number one, it was to signify that you passed the test. You're able to do what you were being called to do. Number two, you uh, possess God's gifting. And number three, you've been called. You've been called. They affirm that calling by God. I don't base my ability or my giftedness of preaching on people saying, well, you do a good job. Yeah, just keep going. You've got a big mouth. Might as well use it for something. That's not how I base my giftedness, and I hope that's not how you base your giftedness in your spiritual gift. But for a preacher to preach, there needs to be a laying on of hands. 
In a couple of weeks, we're going to be laying out of hands of our new leaders that we've brought into this ministry, elders and deacons that we've brought on. We're going to lay hands on them. Why? Because we say you pass the test. You meet the qualifications. It's important for a preacher. You must meet the qualifications. You can teach and preach the Word of God. It also means that you possess God's gifting. A lot of people can preach and teach and think that they're good, but the, but the thing is, is do they possess the gift of God? Is God's gift and God's calling upon you? And have you followed that calling? That's what the laying on of hands means. So what does all this mean? It means a couple of things. When preaching gets tough, which it was for Timothy, in the time of Ephesus, Timothy was being uh, told he was too young. Hey, whippersnapper, sit down and shut up. Who are you to be the one teaching? There were some gray-haired people probably despising him for his youth, which I can hardly say that's not an issue here, and I'm so thankful for that. I don't see people despising me for my youth, even though I am young. But it was in Timothy's day. And Ephesus was a difficult place. There were false teachers. And I'm wondering if, if Timothy was sitting there week in and week out saying, I can't do this anymore. I, I want to give up. Do you know that the average tenure of a pastor is two years? Do you know that the, average, or the, the amount of people, the percentage of pastors that are leaving the ministry because it's difficult, they say, is around 35%. 3.5 out of every 10 ministers leave it. Not because of sin. Not because of uh, better uh, grass on the other side of a fence. But because it's hard. It's difficult. So what is he supposed to do? There's a couple of things. Remember your commitment to the Bible. Are you as a pastor, as an elder, as a teacher committed to the Bible? Well, remember that. Remember you've been gifted and God calls you to use that gift. Even when it's difficult, He calls you to use it. And one thing I always am reminded of, remember that other men, godly men, men that you would say are giants, have confirmed this gifting in you. That you're called to be a part of this. And yet, even despite all these things, biblical preaching has three other elements to it. Number one, it's going to be deeply agonizing. It's going to be uh, deeply ag agonizing. He says, be diligent in verse 14. Look at what he says. He says, do not neglect your gift of verse 15. He says, be diligent in these manners. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. There's a couple of things that we see. This word deeply uh, agonizing comes from the word diligent there. In the NAS, it literally means take great pains. It literally in the Greek means to care for, to attend to, to carefully practice. It is a picture of a singly uh, focused individual on a certain task. It means don't be distracted. Even with all that, it's going to be an agonizing work. The second thing we see is it's going to be fully absorbing. He says, give yourself holy. The NAS says literally be absorbed. Now, if you went to the Greek text, you would not see any of that in there because the Greek literally just says be in them. Be in what? Be in the role and the ministry of the Word. Make the Scripture a part of your life. And finally, it must be clearly advancing. Look at what he says. May, that they may see your progress. Paul says, work hard. Study the Word. Teach and preach the Word of God. Do it passionately. Do it powerfully so that people will say, well, I, I remember Timothy. And I remember when he was a young man and, and, and he was meek and he was quiet and, and, and he wasn't sure of himself. And, and man, boy, has he changed. He's a different man. He stands up against Alexander and Hymenaeus who caused trouble in the church. And that wasn't easy for him. And it went against everything of who he was. But he's grown up in that. See, the reason that this is so important that we remember our commitment and the charisma God has given and the confirmation is there are going to be times where preaching and pastoring are going to be difficult. I would tell you the one thing I never would have seen coming is the amount of time and energy 
eldering and pastoring and preaching takes out of you. It wears you down. I want you to know something. I, I, I finish up after this and, and then I hang around for an hour, but I'm pretty much in, in a zone kind of just like, well, what happened? What just happened? Because I've just unloaded myself. One of the, the people, uh, one of the pastors, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that preaching is like burying yourself naked before a whole group of individuals only to put your clothes back on and to go back in your study and get ready to do it again next Sunday. Now, that may not work for me. That may gross some people out. But that's literally what preachers are saying. And I believe it. I walk out of here exhausted on Sundays. It's an exhausting, it's an agonizing time. It's fully absorbed. Why? Because I've spent all week. Now, understand, being bivocational, I've got two things to worry about. Catering and, uh, and preaching. Can I tell you something? I don't worry that much about catering these days. What am I concerned about? Sunday's coming, and I better have a message ready, and I better make sure I get into that chair and study the Word of God. And there's a lot of late nights, and there's a lot of times where I don't want to be in that chair, but God calls you to it. Why? Because He's called me to that responsibility. It should be advancing. My prayer, you guys hired a neophyte. That's a big word, make you make you think about that, a, a rookie when it came to preaching. And you brought me on, and, and I don't want you to come up afterwards and say, oh, Tim, you're great. Don't say that. Uh, this is what I want you to ask. And I pray that you would answer it in the affirmative. Have I seen progress in Tim? And I hope you can say that. A couple, about a year ago, one of, one of the person came up from the church, and they said, Tim, I just got to tell you something. When, you, when your name came up, I didn't vote for you. I said, well, thanks for the encouragement. But they said, I would today. And you know what? It blessed my heart because I, I understand the step of faith it took for this church to step out and say, all right, we'll try this. And I remember how scary I, I, how scared I was and how scary I thought it was that Tim, this kid that ran around this church, and there's not much good that we remember about Tim, but, but we'll, we'll trust what the elders are saying and we'll move forward. And I hope that you can look back and you can say, hey, there's been progress. You want to know why I hope that? Because I want you to know if God can do progress in me, He can do progress in anyone. And I believe that with all my heart. He can do it for that rebellious teenager. He can do it for the guy that has found himself in all kinds of sin to that woman that's tired. God can do progress. And I hope that you can see that through my life. Paul says, man, show your life to be good, that they'll see your progress. Well, step number four, we need to bring this to a close here quickly. Step number four, verse 16 says, watch your life. How do we show progress? Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will both save yourself and your hearers. There are a couple of things that as, as elders, as pastors, and as preachers we should be doing. And we should make sure our life is marked by godliness and doctrinal purity. Now look at what he says. He says, first of all, every preacher, the, the outline says, must examine his life every day. Paul says, pay close attention. This literally means to always have a concern about it. The NIV uses the term, watch your life. I like that. Keep an eye on it. Be watchful. Be weary about what is going. Be leery about what's going on in your life. Make sure that it it, it meets the criteria. Examine. First Timothy chapter three gives us a a whole bullet point list of areas and ways that preachers and pastors and elders are to be able to uh, examine themselves in their faith. 
We need to examine, uh, am I a person of faith? How can I call you to be a people of faith if I'm not a person of faith? How can I be uh, a, a preacher that is pro-family, a pro-husband uh, loving your wife and being the leader of your house and, and wives submitting to your husbands and kids uh, obeying your parents if I'm not a family man? Uh, my preaching is going to be null and void if you see me uh, not taking care of my, li- uh, my wife and my kids. You're going to sit there and say, well, who is he to get up and to preach to me? That's the, article, that's the argument that we get so many times as preachers. Who are you to preach to me? Well, I hope that you would see I'm a guy that wants nothing more than to honor God and yet who still stumbles. And I'm just preaching what I'm preaching to you. Be a family man. And I know it's difficult. I know it's hard to love your wife at times. I know it's hard to love your kids at times. It's difficult. But do it. God commands us to about finances. The Bible says we're not to be in this for money. It is a sad day. It is a sad day when the Senate of our government has to go after megachurch preachers about where their money is at because they've got millions upon millions upon millions of dollars of unaccounted funds. It's a sad day. It's a sad day that preachers are known more for the suits that they wear than the word that they preach. We need to be careful about finances. Also, the fervor for the gospel. It's important that you don't just see me proclaim the gospel here on Sunday mornings, but that I'm proclaiming it in all days of my week, in all facets of my life, that people are hearing the Word of God. And, and it's not that I'm just kind of, I'm really, wow, Tim's really passionate on Sunday. And then you see me with my neighbor and you see me backing away and say, wait a minute, where, where did he go? Why isn't he doing what he did on Sunday? I need to examine my life. And likewise, that's true for every Christian need to be establishing godly doctrine. He says, uh, watch your life and your doctrine. It's the same word that we saw earlier in the text. This word, the teaching. We need to make sure our life and doctrine match. That what we study and what we preach from is exactly what you see in my own life. A preacher can't just preach. He must also be able to refute false doctrine. He must be able to protect the flock. I can't just sit there and have story after story off of a little Bible verse that, that I've kind of paraphrased into my own idea of something. But I need to understand, in the later days, people will turn away from true doctrine. It is a sad day on Larry King when we watch one of the famous pastors in our, our nation say that doctrine really doesn't matter. And I can quote you in that and go to YouTube and you can find it. That's not good. When major pastors in our country are saying doctrine isn't important. And we wonder why gays and lesbians are being brought into churches as preachers and teachers of the word. We wonder why there's gross immorality. It's because doctrine isn't important. That's garbage. Doctrine is important, and we need to make sure we teach it and make sure our lives live by it. It's important. Let us never forget that. He says, watch it and watch it closely. Give evidence to our growth in Christ. Timothy was to show progress. It says, in doing this, you will save yourself and you will save others. Was Paul saying, Timothy, if you preach real good, you may save yourself from eternal damnation? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that you will prove your salvation to all who hear it. I hope that you see that I am a person, an individual who has fallen uh, in, 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 in sin and in disgrace, and yet God has brought me out of that. And he's brought me out not based on anything I can do, but by the unmerited grace and favor of Almighty God. And that in that, I preach that. And why do I preach it? Because if I don't preach that, then it doesn't enable people to come to Jesus. 
is the preaching of the Word of God, enabling people to come to Jesus. The Bible says that teachers will have a stricter judgment. Why? Why will we have a stricter judgment? Because we will have turned people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sadly, I turn on the TV far too many times, see people that are proclaiming this book and are never preaching from it. And what does it do? If you don't preach the Word, I can tell you, you don't lead people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You this morning. And Lord, I, I pray that we would know and understand the importance of preaching. Oh, Father, I pray that this was not just something that I needed to hear. Father, I pray that this grows us as a body. This, this teaches us as a body of what, of what we're to be looking for, of what we're to be yearning for. Father, that this will be a measuring stick for, for every teacher and every proclaimer of the Word of God. Oh, Father, I pray that we will be a people in our workplaces and in our schools who won't be known just to know a lot of Bible facts, but that they will see our doctrine, but they'll also see our life, that it lives up to that, that our walk would match the talk. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be a church that would continually, in every facet of ministry, be people of the Word. Just as Ezra was told by the people, bring out the book, Father, that uh, the people here would continue to announce to their leadership time and time again the yearning for the Word of God. We will die without this Word, Lord. Our lives will become completely destroyed as a result of not having this Word. So we yearn for it. And Father, we don't just yearn for it in any old way, but we yearn for it to come in the proper way, with a proper interpretation, with a proper application, so Lord, that we can understand what Your true words are and how they apply to our lives. Oh Lord, I pray that the teachers would move out of the way and that they would study to show themselves approved unto God, that they'd be able to declare the truth of God in a clear and precise way. Oh Lord, let us live up to our name, that we are Village Bible Church. Not that we just bring our Bibles to church, Father, but that we would be a people, by Your Spirit's help, we would be a people who yearn for that Bible and for it to be taught day in and day out. To that we give you the honor and praise because we know that you've allowed us all these years to be able to do that. And Lord, we pray that you'll give us another 35 years to do it in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.